gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch, the podcast in which two nerds, that's me and Ethan, talk about books, but not about Scotch. I'm your host today, Michael Lilienthal, and this is my guest, Ethan Bartlett. Hi, I'm Ethan Bartlett. That's what I just said. I'm his guest. <laughs> yes, accurate. He's Michael. I am Michael. I'm now trying playing a game where I figure out how much of your words I can repeat. I see, I see. Uh, so you can't be original is what you're saying. I'm saying I can't be original. <laughs> and when I try, I use a phrase like, how much of your words, so this is how today's going to go. We're off to a flying start. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, today, gentle listener, we're doing something a little different, but it's not actually that different because we do these sorts of things all the time, so can we really call them specials anymore if they're not really that special? Look... If you're going to just undercut yourself, what am I supposed to do this whole episode? I, I feel like that's kind of been the theme of our entire podcast, though. We establish ourselves as something, and then we completely undercut it. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's very Midwestern, really. It, it really is, which is appropriate, because today oh. we're discussing essays by Bill Holm and his collection, The Music of Failure. Ha-ha. ha glad you. I'm glad you walked across the, the uh, jacket I laid across that pond for you. Much appreciated, much appreciated. I'm sorry you'll never see that jacket again. Well, I'm sorry you're now Queen Elizabeth I, so we all have our crosses <laughs> to bear. I'm not. <laughs> um, so yes, uh, as as is the, the, the custom with these specials, we are not actually in a room. We are in separate rooms, uh, and nor are we with Scotch, unless Ethan was a butt and decided to be with Scotch. I uh, did not decide to be with Scotch, no. Oh, okay. I decided to so, be with someone else. Oh, good. Who are you with, Ethan? Well, besides my wife. Um, <laughs> actually, I'm not with her. She's at work right now. But uh, that's not the point. Um, <laughs> I am with a drink I have made for myself. It is called the Great Northern. Confusingly enough, it has nothing to do with the Great Northern Distillery, whose <laughs> whiskey has been featured on this podcast before. That's um, what I was going to ask. Yeah. <laughs> I, re I read that title and I was like, oh man, we're going to have to have a lacuna about this. Um, yep. <laughs> and we did. <laughs> and, here we, and even though I tried to to sort of jump us past it, we uh, <laughs> we ran right into that shark. Um, yep. Anyway, yeah, so it's a, it's a cocktail I got out of a book um, that is called Death & Co., which is a book about a bar in New York City that is also called Death & Co., in short for Death & Company. Um it has a lot of cocktails in it. It may have been featured on this podcast before. I can't remember. Um, it's the book in my collection that I'll I'll look at, you know, a recipe and be like, oh, well, I have three of these ingredients. Unfortunately, there are six, and the other three are all different, like, obscure Italian Amari that cost <laughs> $40 a bottle each or whatever. Um, but there's some good recipes in it, and I just picked up a bottle of Aquavit, um, ah. which uh, is the sort of scandinavian liquor of choice traditionally speaking um mm -hmm. so i've been sort of experimenting with that and this book was one of the few sources that i've been able to find that had akavit cocktails in it um so that's that's the the base spirit in this one akavit is kind of it's a little gin ish there's uh not not so much with juniper but there's like caraway and and certain other like botanical things and, and herb things to it um and the the uh 
brand of Akavit I got is called Linny, which is a, a old and well-respected brand. And um, the story goes that their particular Akavit is finished in sherry casks that are put on a sailing ship and sent across the equator and back to to sort of finish them and this that's that part's true the story is that they they invented this in like the 18th century by accidentally like sending some akavi to india or something and then the ship got sent back and when the akavi arrived back because it was in the casks and had been exposed to the sun like it entirely altered the the flavor profile or whatever um gotcha so it's a good story and yeah. uh you know this this cocktail has that it has uh uh lilit blanc which is a uh french aperitif sort of a white port-esque thing and cointreau and mm-hmm. lemon juice um and it's quite good it's quite pleasant and sort of lemony sort of sort of like a whiskey sour but less angry um, oh, okay akavit <laughs> i actually describe as like gin but if gin were nice to you uh-huh. it was sort of a like I, I said it was sort of gin e, but it's it sort of has that scandinavian like niceness to it rather than the like i see en- i see english Very nice. you know uh uh rabble rousey nature that gin definitely has when you taste it right right yeah so michael oh, very good what are you drinking what are you with I think it's who I am with. I I am with Satin Solitude from Central Waters Brewing oh. uh, because that's how this book makes me feel. <laughs> <laughs> like Central Solitude. Like Satin Solitude. Sat- satin Solitude. Oh, there's too many too many uh, soft sounds in there. I got myself yes. mixed up. Such soft sounds. <laughs> several. Sweetly several sapping. Soft, soft. You're doing you're doing it better, and I'm just uh, interrupting you because <laughs> how this is going. So are, are you able to get, and this is an aside that will be very interesting to everybody, are you able to get Central Waters in Minnesota? Do they distribute that widely? Okay. Yeah, at our uh, our local Hy-Vee liquor store, uh, they do have a pretty good selection of Central Waters. Cool. Which I was very pleased to find when I moved here. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's excellent. I, I guess I just assumed they were not distributing outside of the state of Wisconsin. Well, I brought some, you know, I used to live 15 miles from the brewery, so yes. uh, I used to bring some back to Minnesota when I would visit people, and no one had ever heard of it when I brought it back, so I think it's kind of a recent thing that they've expanded their exports. Okay, that would make sense. So, I think I think what I'm hearing is that you, like, created this. You put a I central did, yes. water I, seed I, in Minnesota, and it spread from there, clearly. Right. I brought it back. People noticed the, the bottles and the taste and just spread the desire, and so the 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 exporting was accomplished because of me. So Central yeah. Waters owes you some money, is what I'm hearing? Right. I'm still waiting for the, 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 the royalties from this. I don't know if royalties is the right term. but Well, and by extension, they owe this podcast some money. So what I'm saying is Central Waters needs to... Uh, Sponsor this yes, podcast. Yes, sponsor this podcast. The Scotch Podcast. <laughs> right, that makes sense. <laughs> Listen, the folks at Glenlivet continue to ignore my calls, so we have to do <laughs> something. Oh, yeah. You know what? I, I, I could say this now. If any single distillery from Scotland um, decided to sponsor this podcast, we would never drink another Scotch unless they wanted us to. Yeah. It would be just, just the Scotch that, that is from them. Yeah, I wholeheartedly <laughs> agree with that. That's that's how it would go. <laughs> we are um, we are nothing if not willing to compromise everything about this show for profit. 
Exactly. We're all about the money. <laughs> all right. So, um, because this is a, a special, we don't really have rules, so yeah. your wife can stay gone. She doesn't need to come in here at all. I don't need to call her home but, from work. No, you don't need to do that. But, um, yeah, I guess then uh, we'll uh, we'll salute, and then we'll start talking about uh, these these essays by Bill Holm. Excellent. So, Lachaim. Prost. All that, all of this stuff out, right? So that no one, no, no one knows how the special effects get made. <laughs> Everyone needs to know how the special effects get made. <laughs> uh, so now, Ethan, this uh, this set of uh, essays was your idea. It was. Um, I, 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 I so defend this... yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Man, it's like it's like Terry Gross in here. Um, <laughs> I, I take this uh, I took the seed of it from you because you said the words creative nonfiction when we were kicking around ideas for this podcast, mm-hmm. um, which after I had talked you out of uh, trying to make the gentle listener read all twelve volumes of Francis Pieper's dogmatic uh, theology. <laughs> there are only three. Oh, okay, sorry. Um, Four if you include the index. <laughs> Uh, the only, you, you know, you, you admitted that you don't read a whole lot of nonfiction that is not, uh, uh, theological. And I guess I don't either, but, uh, I, I, I read some occasionally, but I often mm-hmm. forget to. Um, and so, but Bill Holmes, uh, book of essays was one that I had read in the past that had affected me profoundly and that I f- had been feeling recently I wanted to go back to partly cause like, it was one of those books that I, I think I read in like a day, like seven years ago. And I re- remember it being extremely moving, um, but I have no idea why. Uh, and so I'd been sort of meaning to go back to it anyway. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, that sort of slotted right in with, with our podcast needs at the time. Yeah. So I don't really have any anything much more profound than that. Other than that, like, that's one of the interesting things about like, rereading things and like reading stuff with friends is that sometimes things affect me very profoundly and then either I go back to them or I recommend them to other people and suddenly it's like wait oh this this wasn't great I was like (laughs) sometimes it just has to do with like either I was younger and my tastes weren't very well developed or I wasn't as observant a reader or else it just like hit me at the exact right moment and mm. I do coming back to it. It's not as profound as I thought it was. Um, okay. Or, you know, again, I, I recommend it to someone and they say, why did you like this? And <laughs> uh, then I have to either defend myself or admit um, that I was very wrong, which being okay. from the Midwest, I'm more likely to do the latter. 
Right, right. Now, so, now Michael. Bill Holm here is, is native Minnesotan. Yes. Um, or was uh, Minnesotan when um, he was alive. And uh, wrote this this set of essays kind of, you know, throughout his life. But yes. now I want to ask you, is this an example of, of what you were just describing where you come back to it and it's like, oh, this is more disappointing than I remember? No, I would, I would not say that. Um, I would say actually that like coming back to this and, you know, I read this when I was in grad school, so it's, but it's still probably been about eight years now. And coming back to it was less that experience and it was actually more like, oh, that's where I first encountered that idea. Um, gotcha. I think there were a lot of ideas, especially in the essay, The Music of Failure itself, that uh, I actually probably think about on a daily basis and that have become mm. so ingrained that I've forgotten where I got them from. Sure. Um, I, I can definitely see that. Yeah. Um, I think now, we... What, just one more thought. I, I think at, yeah. the, at the time I was reading it, I think, again, especially Music of Failure, put a lot of things into focus that I'd sort of been trying to come up with, but it took a, a brilliant writer like Bill Holm to uh, uh, sure. focus that for me and, and put it into words that, that, which is always a humiliating experience because it's usually like once that happens, you just are like, oh, yeah, well, yeah, that's one sentence. Like, how have I not been able to come up with this? <laughs> Right. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. <laughs> making me feel dumb. Yeah. That's why we read. We read to feel dumb. It's right. We do. That's 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 our primary motivation. Uh, now we read three essays from this collection, "The Music of Failure," um, and "The Music of Failure: vari Variations on an Idea" is the third one that we read. So I want to kind of take them. I think in the order we read them, or yeah. in the order that they are printed in the book. That makes sense uh, to me for uh -huh. several reasons. Sure. So that Music of Failure is the third one that we read, so we'll take that one last. Yes. Um, the first one we read was The Grand Tour. I do think um, that... the So we should yeah. we should let the gentle listener read read the book. Yes, um, we should. So gentle listener, pause your, pause your podcast CD, um, and... Get a copy of this book. I recommend just reading the whole thing, but um, sure. I was for for our purposes. I think we did do the two longest uh, uh, essays. I was trying to figure out if that was true or not. I couldn't remember. I'm pretty exactly, sure but... it's definitely two yeah, of I... the longest essays. Right. Yeah. Um, the Grand Tour. Uh, the second one we read was Singing Latin in New Ulm, which is a shorter one, and then the Music of Failure, which is definitely the longest in the, in book. the book. Yes. So, pause your CD. Uh, do that. <laughs> yes. And we're back. Aren't you so sad now? <laughs> or are uh, you? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So let's let's start then by talking about uh, the grand tour. I yes. Think. Um. So I am interested, especially with this essay, but obviously with all of them in hearing okay. literally anything about your reaction to this essay, because I've already talked at length about at least my summary ones. Well, I, I it was interesting to hear you say that, uh, you know, he was putting into words some things that had been kind of rattling around in your own brain for a while, um, because that's more or less how I felt with the majority of the Grand Tour. Interesting. Just this idea of the, the nature of, of farmers and the nature of 
life in the Midwest on the prairie and, yes. and such. I I've lived most of my life in Minnesota. Sure. So this a lot of this was very familiar to me. The the particular area he's talking about, I only have a minimum uh, of experience with that uh, kind of middle north western end of Minnesota. Sure. Um, but I I did live some of the the early time of my life in southern western minnesota sure so like the prairie aspect of things were were very familiar to me yeah and uh, as well as just this idea of night driving which yeah. is kind of um the backdrop of this essay right uh, driving at night and how that kind of unveils a different perspective on things how uh, even in the the end of the first paragraph um he says that uh, this driving at night and seeing that you know the the whole human race seems to have disappeared here uh, it provides me with a valuable corrective against human arrogance, yes. which is fantastic. The, the The very first paragraph of this entire essay just drew me right in because it was so familiar to me as a Minnesotan, as a Midwestern, uh, and then also provided me with words to this idea of why does driving at night seem the way it does? Right. Um, and it is that, you know... Everything that goes on in human life, human existence, more or less seems less important by the time you get to the night. Yeah. And especially driving at sort of the times that he's describing, which is not only at night, but it's like at night when barely anyone else is on the road, um, and especially right. in a less populated area. And there is that humility to realizing that, like, there's so much space that goes on both both like that I don't witness personally and that no one witness pers witnesses personally but yeah. it's still sort of there like we could all just sort of disappear tomorrow and like certain you know a lot of stuff would just be the same continue to go on yeah yeah did you ever see the the show? I forget what network it was on, like Discovery or the History Channel or something stupid like uh -huh. that. Um, it wasn't necessarily a great show, but it was interesting anyway. Um, called um, something like Life After Humans. Oh, uh, I think I I didn't ever see the show. I think they produced like a like a coffee table book, and I think sure. I spent some time when I worked at the library and should have been shelving it paging through it like i think i actually remember that from high school um so i'm right. familiar with what you're talking about yeah well that's that's one of the things it reminded me of just the idea of like humans fall away and then what happens what sure. goes on when there are no humans which they definitely went more into it like after 10 years these buildings will fall right. and after 50 years you won't recognize these cities sure, you know, sure. things like that which isn't necessarily what bill holm is getting at with this story but it does contain the same sort of idea that humans could disappear and life could go yeah, on. Yeah, it's a similar um life and life does go on. Right. It's a it's a similar sort of feeling, I think. Uh yeah. That that he's evoking. Um but he is doing it for a very different purpose. You know, with the yes. what I what I was saying before and, and you know even this this uh this life after humans idea, you could get to a very sort of nihilistic place um Certainly. quite easily with it. And uh, I think Bill Holmes, um, and you know the we have the rest of the essay to to back this up, but but Holmes yeah. more 
interested in the sense of wonder that that creates not the idea that like oh it's all pointless it's the idea that you get to exist you do get to exist within this this much broader sphere and that you do get to to witness it and you know in a sense that you he he starts with a similar um humility yeah aspect you know you start with that idea of just humility in the face of these things but then um whereas you know life after humans would take that humility like you say to a nihilistic uh space bill holm takes that humility to like you say a sort of wonder idea like then what is my actual place right uh here in all of this yeah, and it, you know, with with this, he he uses terms of uh, religion, um, describing the the raccoons and foxes and things having their cathedral in the prairie. Right. Um, that uh, in uh, part two of the essay, starting on page five, I think we have the same edition yeah. as our page numbers yeah. for where they start. They, they seem to match up. Um, I think probably any up. edition that yeah. uh, you are likely to find at this point is probably going to be the same edition. Um, right. Uh, from what I could understand, there are essentially two editions, and the one that you're probably going to find now is the the University of Minnesota okay. Press edition, which is yeah. what we have. And I think um, it's like looking on Amazon and other places. I it was sort of the only uh, thing I could yeah. I could find without at least digging a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, here on, at the start of the the first paragraph of part two. Um, he says, continue for a while thinking of the Minnesota prairies as a natural cathedral with night services. By day, money changers occupy the temple, and to them, there is no sacred place. The world is only real estate and can be filed at the courthouse. Uh, that, that, that aspect, that idea, um, and there's more, I think in part two is really where things get, get rolling, um, in this essay, but, uh, just that, that idea of the night services in the temple, but humans are the money changers, uh, in this this temple of the prairie, which is he 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 goes into a lot about place, about yes. sacredness of place, um, and for humans at least as they behave in the Midwest at the time of his writing here, um, don't act as though that's true. Yeah. It's real estate. It's something to. It's something that is intimately tied with money. Right. If you don't um, mind, I want to put a pause on that one just for a second. Um, yeah. Okay. Because you're right that like. Starting with so part one sort of functions as a prologue to this essay, um, and yeah. part two really sort of then delves. Like, is part one is like overture, and part two delves into the the meat of it. Um, but uh, before we before we get there, I want to talk about my reaction just briefly to to the prologue. Yeah, uh, because it was very similar to yours, which is um, interesting because you know your your uh, your personal background is much sort of geographically closer to what Holm is talking about. You've lived in Minnesota for much longer than I did. But I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin, and especially, uh, say, 20 to 25 years ago, um, and even still to some extent to this day, even that town uh, very much, I I could see it in this first paragraph. Um, Mm. My parents joked, especially. So I live, I live in this town. It's near Madison, Wisconsin, right? And Madison, of mm-hmm. course, is the capital. And when I grew up, it was a, it was a, a, not really a suburb. It was its own little farm town. And it's as Madison has sort of spread out, um, it's becoming more like a suburb where there's like, you know, uh, coffee places and 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 bars, sort of. 
mm-hmm. with an eye towards like people hip people from the city coming out and and uh <laughs> eating here um and and tourist you know traffic and and stuff like that um but i think i was born almost straddling a a timeline uh between that versus the farther back i get in, in my life the more it really was just sort of a a farm town um that mm-hmm. i i remember in my childhood my parents talking about how everything in town shuts down by five and that actually means uh-huh. four um yeah and that if you go <laughs> and that even the bars you know of course notoriously bars are the last thing open in any town but like the joke was that even the bars close by nine or maybe ten on fridays um which is mm-hmm. you know still even to this day as much as we're becoming closer to your more urban style of of thing only in a very small town wisconsin way but um even now you know quite often if i go if i have an errand to do at like 10 o'clock on a weeknight it's dead there's no one on the streets Mm. um and you know even if there are they're clustered around like three or four like bars or restaurants that are open in one specific part of town um so i think you know home home locates us very specifically in minnesota but i think there's there is a universalness right definitely to the midwest and i think there may be something here to sort of rural areas in general um absolutely and that's something you know that comes out i i read the foreword um after reading these essays too and um that was something that the the writer of the foreword noticed that um it's very easy to just think of Bill Holm as a Minnesotan right. author, but he does have a much wider influence than that. Uh, and I can definitely see that that's sure. true. You know, he 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 does, I think, carry a um, kind uh, to an extent. He carries the torch of like Walt yeah. Whitman, um, who he quotes right. quite frequently and, and emulates a good deal. But um, I, I, I think he he does that yeah. successfully. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I I think that's, like, a phenomenon I've noticed in certain great writers, like, throughout literature, is that often Mm. the more universal they are, the more it's because they tied themselves to a very specific sense of place. Um, Almost a, a, like, somehow, somehow with a really good writer, the more that detailed they are in their, in their depiction of a given place sometimes the more universal their their work becomes somehow that was if i can you know give a personal anecdote on this too uh-huh. this this reminded me of my first semester at college um besides my childhood and and just the idea of then driving right. at night later oh, in, in life i did want to say that you know. quick um we both went to yeah. college and grad school of our various types in mankato minnesota yep um Yep. So, I mean, I lived there for the better part of six years. I don't know what what it would be for you. Seven for yeah. me. So when we say we haven't lived in like Minnesota in that that Minnesota Great Plains, the farther out you zoom geographically from Mankato, the closer we did in fact live to exactly what yep. we're talking about. Like our <laughs> that's absolutely our true. distance from it is is again the broader the scale, the more minimal it it seems right right i just wanted to mention that. um but anyway the first essay i wrote in college was um about place um, okay this this concept of place and 
it struck me, like you said right at the beginning of this podcast, too, he was putting into words here things that were rattling around in my brain. (laughs) So, like, it it reminded me of that essay, and I'm like, I should go back to that. I'll probably hate it, but I should look at it again. Uh, I haven't yet, but... um, (laughs) I, I still might. Yeah, any anything but, yeah. one wrote at the age of, of eighteen is is the best avoided I have found. Yeah, yeah. That that may be. It's probably not great. Even like I, even if it is good, that's almost worse. If it is good, then what have I done with my life? Exactly. <laughs> like like occasionally, most of the stuff I I dare myself to go back and read from when I'm younger is just absolute garbage. But occasionally there is a piece that's good, and I'm like, am I this good a writer now? Mm-hmm. And that's, like I say, that's almost mm-hmm. worse. Have I improved, or have I completely lost touch? <laughs> <laughs> right. Could I do this again? Right, right. Um, do, you, do, you, do you remember anything else about your, uh, your what I assume it, was for college comp? Yes, it was for college comp, the, the college writing course. I had um, uh, Lars Johnson before he was Dr. Johnson. Um, and he, he liked the essay. He wanted me to work on it and try to get it published at some point. Sure. Um, I never did, uh, cause college was busy, but, right. um, you know, that's, that's maybe another motivation for me to look back at it. Maybe I can touch it up and, and refine it and then get it published. But anyway, it was about, um, a coffee shop that I attended the summer before college frequently. Okay. Um, and I had bought one of the, the mugs that they make in house. One of the owners was a potter and had made oh. this, this mug. Um, and that's, those are the sorts of mugs that they served. And so it was about how I could take that place with me with that mug. Um, and you know, that place became a sort of inspirational place. But if I had that mug, then I had that place with me too. Sure. Um, that's more or less the theme behind it all. Sure. I think, I, I think Bill Holm would also appreciate that. uh, Sure. Idea. Um, Yeah that you know he uh uh as you as you said he he very much um focuses on the idea of a sense of of place um but i i think his sense of place is less static than the word place in english often implies um right not less static than less uh uh flat or less easily circumscribed yeah, and that ties into the theme of the music failure, too, that essay, which ends with that statement, the heart can be filled up anywhere on earth. Yes. But, I mean, we're not talking about that essay yet. <laughs> um, even though it is kind of hard to think of these separately because the, the ideas are so intertwined. Yes. Um, and I can just, uh, I can picture this sort of, this writer, um, Bill Holm, as, you know, he's got all these ideas rattling around in his head and he's just communicating them however the words come to him at any given time and so the same ideas are going to come out in just slightly different words yeah absolutely uh it reminds me of a uh the one creative writing class i took in grad school um i got to even though i was literature grad school i got to take a creative writing class as an elective um and that was taught by a man named jeffrey herbach or Jeff Herbach, I think he goes by, who has written a few uh, New York Times bestselling uh, young adult novels um, mm. and was a brilliant teacher. Uh, taught me, like, one of the single most influential uh, writing inf- teachers or writing influences uh, that I think I've had. Um, and he, we, we had a whole, like, hour and a half class period discussion 
about how writers often are only writing about one thing. Um, mm. He said that that many of the greatest writers, and and they don't necessarily do it on purpose, um, and they don't necessarily know that they're doing it, but quite often the greatest writers discover that a whole lifetimes of work lifetime of work has only been about one single thing, and I think that you know maybe that's you, you know that maybe you've discovered Bill Holmes' thing. Um, sure. That, you know, the heart can be filled anywhere on Earth. Well, uh, and that same sentiment, I just found the sentence I was trying to think of in the Grand Tour. It's on page 10, right at the top, the end of that, that paragraph up at the top. Even if you live in a backpack, you carry some sacred places yeah, with you. I knew, I knew that there was something in this essay that connected better than anything I had said to your... Uh, your essay about the coffee mug, and that was that was it. Our, yep. Which you know, it was just a whole section that I apparently just forgot. But <laughs> that's all right. That's that's at the end of him talking about this guy who buried his dog uh, in Montana. Yes. This, um. This guy who. Uh, John Allen. Yes. Who? Where does he? He says something. Oh, the IRS doesn't keep track of him. No telephone number. Um, uh huh. He cannot be reached, though he may reach you, which is. Not that it necessarily matters for this essay, but it's the kind of person I hear, especially like raconteurs like Bill Holm, I think was to some extent, they'll, you know, talk about these characters, and I always am tempted to doubt if they're real. Like, this does not seem like a person who's yep. real. This seems like someone that Neil Gaiman made up. Um, yes, and I, I, I've had that thought about a lot of the things he writes in here, but also, like, what how could he be actually lying about these things? I yes. mean, there's there's um, a, a hint of the, the supernatural in here with the um, the ghosts that come right at the very next section, section six, section six, yes. where they go to the, the, um, the old Scandahoovian church yes. uh, that had been boarded up, and someone who had never been there before uh, saw ghosts, and he recognized the ghosts as she explained them. Um, just, yeah, that, I mean, that sounds... It sounds made up also. Totally made up, but yeah. also it sounds totally reasonable. <laughs> right. Well, and with both of these things, like, I've known people like John Allen. Uh, sure. You know, I've, I've met enough weird people and put myself in enough sort of, like, weird out-of-the-way places in both the Wisconsin countryside and the Minnesota countryside um, mm -hmm. that I know that people like this do exist. Uh you know, sure. and even I mentioned that he sounds like a Neil Gaiman character, and I know that Neil Gaiman has said that some of his his uh, more unbelievable characters are just people he's met in real life. Yeah, and that it's it's some of the more unbelievable ones that are that way because he would not dare to make them up. Mm -hmm. Um. So yeah, it's yeah, uh, you know, it's it's a combination of that idea of you know, truth is stranger than fiction. Yes. But also that uh, that T-shirt, be careful or you might end up in my novel. <laughs> right. Um, which Bill Holm has said, forget novel, I'm just going to tell it how it is. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And and with the ghost story, too, uh, you know, again, it sounds very made up. It sounds very sort of campfire-ish, I would say. Um, you know, and, and then he described the, the people in the house to the sun and the sun turned white as a sheet because that was the spitting image of his father um uh -huh. except again i've known people who have had similar similar stories um sure. you know i've i've known perfectly rational people who you know 
even even some of them atheists or agnostics who don't necessarily have like a vested interest of any kind in there being a spiritual world and who don't aren't you know aren't typically on drugs or anything like that like there's no reason or like way to easily explain it away who say they have seen ghosts or have seen you know things things yeah. that that sure look and seem and act like ghosts um yeah and you know and how do you how do you explain that uh so right once again in, and home questions i will say in in the section six six um home later questions that story in the sort of summary to his his essay uh i'm trying to find it quickly and uh, of course because i'm trying to find it quickly i'm not i'm not doing it um but right at the end he uh says something about like a ghost that may or may not have happened i can't i can't find it i'll mm. i'll let you know if i if i do oh yeah okay it's it starts at the bottom of 15 um the, oh. the very last paragraph so where are our sacred places in Minnesota? our bone-filled cathedrals our fray foxy's mm. cliff i have proposed four a garden a gravestone with a missing date a church where something odd may or may not have happened um, uh-huh. that's right yeah so you know he even within the essay that one in that one specifically he does sort of question um yeah but like maybe the point is the questions maybe in you know this idea of sacred space is as much about uh asking questions as it is about knowing anything with certainty sure i don't know yeah, if that's... the point i arrived at was the point i started out towards but no, that's I'm all right. Lost, lost that, somewhere on it's, Highway 23. It's just an interesting notice that he does kind of second guess it himself, but it's it's all tied to this idea of the the perception. It, the 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 moral of the whole essay is the experience is your experience is the key, whatever that experience yes. is. Um which um maybe that's the the part where I object to it the most. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, is right in the middle of page 16, the, the paragraph that starts right there. Um, I wrote in my margin in, in all caps, the moral, <laughs> where he gives the moral of all of this. And then it's like, okay, I, I see where you're you're driving at with this, but you're getting a little preachy for me now. Yeah. I thought we were setting out not to read something theological. Right. And all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like... I, I, I don't have a problem with the conclusions that he's arrived at, I guess. Yeah, I guess I have um, more of a problem with the idea or with the the fact that he's trying to drive home any particular conclusions in the first place. Like, it changes the tone of the essay and makes it sound more yes. didactic than I think I was hoping for. I think, honestly, it undercuts his main point. By making this point, he's undercutting yeah. his point. That if if your experience is the key, then you shouldn't be telling me that my experience is the key because then I'm relying on what you're telling right. me. Right. <laughs> um, which like, it, you know, he he sets up this uh, this dichotomy of power versus experience. That um, power is going to try to undercut your experience, but experience is is going to be the more right or closer to the the sacred. Um, which uh, he discusses frequently um, in this idea of the divine, um, which I think um, he does this in the, in the music of failure too, where he almost didactically gets to um, the idea of, 
a, a structured religion is going to be a problem yeah. or uh, a structured government is going to be a problem and you know like some of the some of the ideas i'm i'm with him on but then yeah. like he he is too didactic well and we're not talking about the music of failure yet though we no, we're should not, probably we're not. Be but like soon. i think some of that is here in the grand yeah. tour as um, well no it, it um, definitely is I was going to say, we, we should probably be talking about the music of failure very soon, but... Right, we're, we're spending a lot of time on yeah, the Grand Tour. which, I mean, again, I think I think we could probably do a, an entire episode, if we wanted to, on um, the three-page essay singing Latin in New Ulm. Um, oh, probably. But uh, ju- I, I just want to say that, that it on, in the Grand Tour, I feel more betrayed by the didacticism than I do in the music of failure. And maybe this can be a bridge yeah. over there because the music of failure as a whole is a much more rhetorical essay. And in, in the sense that Holm throughout it has certain sort of a rhetorical or argumentative points that he does clearly yes. want to make and to prove to whatever extent he can sort of personally. Right. Um, and I mind it. Whereas the grand tour is, you know, just what it says. It's a yeah. tour. He's a tour guide saying, here's this, here's this, here's this. Draw your own conclusions. I'm just giving you the exactly. pictures. Um, but then when he does give the moral at the end, then it feels, yeah, like a betrayal. It just feels preachy. More. Yeah, And exactly. it, it was a, I don't know, it was an essay whose, for me, the, the uh, beauty of it came in the fact that it, even though it was it was driving at something, it was getting there by sort of not preaching is is more of i think i think sometimes creative nonfiction writers would maybe call this like a collage essay where you have several sections that are thematically linked but they're not uh it's not sort of one one argumentative point leading into another right right but again bill holm reminds me of mark twain to some extent uh you know okay another you know, very, very American writer who mm-hmm. um, deeply questions sort of all of the, the structures that uh, s- sort of dictated the lives of a lot of Americans, um, which is also what Holm is doing in questioning both the mm-hmm. government and the church and, you know, some of these various other structures. Um, and Twain, Twain famously, well, maybe not so famously, but it came up a lot when I researched him for my master's degree. He said, I have always preached. <laughs> uh, Twain had that idea that he, even though he was pretending to write fiction, he was actually preaching. Um, and maybe Bill Holm is in sort of a good American tradition that way without be, sort of being unable to resist preaching to some extent mm-hmm. when he when he has a pulpit. Yeah. Uh, anything else you wanted to say about the Grand Tour? No, I think I we hit the end of it here. Okay. That um, yeah, just the the idea of experience is is ultimately the the point he's driving at, um, which um, is it, yeah, you know, it's it's funny because I just came off reading another book um, where it, it uh, discounted experience. <laughs> oh, <laughs> in a lot of ways, but um, was that no, a, anyway. a- fiction book or a non-fiction book non-fiction okay um that was um religion on trial by craig parton oh interesting yep yeah um yeah parton anyway parton was a big influence on me when i was in high school and it just occurred to me that a a fantasy dinner might actually just be craig parton bill holm and me that would be awesome with me saying just enough to set them off talking to each other and then just and then just watch drinking scotch in silence 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, all right. Anyway. Should we go on to uh, singing Latin in New Ulm? Yeah. I don't know if you have anything much you want to say about this. In the interest of time, I don't. I don't have a whole lot. I. Mostly... I don't have a time. It. It strikes me. Here's what I. What I would describe this as. It's the scherzo of the essays. Yes. Because it's a big <laughs> joke. Yeah. Um. <laughs> it, it touches. And again, this is the me me bordering on dangerous territory here by saying it touches on sort of a bunch of the themes both in grand tour and in music of failure um yeah in the way that a scherzo would like you know have have musical themes from the the music around it um but it's just ultimately and this is the reason i wanted you to read it especially personally (laughs) and the reason i want the gentle listener to read it and the reason i wanted to reread it is that it's just a beautiful wonderful joke uh yep it is that i'm that i'm 100 percent sure is 90 to 100 percent based on based on something that really happened yeah i know like absolutely oh yeah but it's also got a a line that um i think is is one that comes most easily to mind when i think back to this collection uh and it's right in the very first paragraph on page 63 in the middle in western minnesota brick is catholic wood is Lutheran. yes and like he wrote that and i was like huh Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and that was the other one, other reason I wanted you and I specifically to read this, is that again, having you know said we we went to school in Mankato, New Ulm is like, what, fifteen minutes down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like when driving, doing the like five hour drive between Mankato and Madison, you know, after a school break or something, hitting like that exact cathedral that I have, you know been to in new Ulm. that was when i knew that it was like all right almost the drive is almost done i'm almost back into school land yep. now. so but yeah. yeah other than that yeah it's it's a joke it's a very funny joke but yeah uh, yeah <laughs> uh, all right the music of failure the longest essay and we're 45 minutes in yep <laughs> so um and, and absolutely i i loved this essay yeah um i i loved it so much um i i think you know he he does have some of the same stylistic things in the music of failure uh that he did in the grand tour where he just kind of presents things yes. uh and and illustrates them i'm thinking of the the family that takes up uh the uh the majority i guess uh the bardels yeah or the bardels yeah and um, again much a lot of stuff you'd see in fiction um in that yes. in that in the especially those sections just district descriptions of character district oh my gosh rubber baby <laughs> How you doing there? rubber baby buggy bumpers um <laughs> Good. descriptions of of setting as character um you know all all used yeah. to sort of show the theme rather than tell the theme um yeah again, very fictive I, I... very narrative one of the things that uh, it reminded me of as he was describing Pauline Bardal um, and and then the whole family and things, it reminded me of Saul Bellow. Oh, sure. A little yeah. bit. Um, Another with his, great Midwestern know, writer. Portraits of people, right? Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, what, what he was doing here with Pauline and then her whole family. And he sets up this whole story of them. And almost subconsciously you do wait for the turn you wait for the the success story to come out right. of it. like where do they go next but he is illustrating exactly this idea of failure right this whole grand story that he gives of them ends in failure but by taking it with that same perspective of um like Saul Bellow in Ravelstein and things giving the the portraits right. uh, the verbal portraits and things you know they they do have success 
right. in that way. And I mean, this this whole book, in a way, and certainly this whole essay, turns on that idea of failure without yeah. ever defining what failure is. Um, right. Like, it, it gives, like, failure, according to the American ideal, is to, to die penniless uh, and forgotten... Um, and he says something something worse too, uh, but um, yes. anyway, like that 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 idea of failure, and that's like what common idea of failure is gonna be. But that's not real failure. And he gets to uh, at the and at the very end, the very last paragraph, whatever failure is, Miniota is not it. Right. Um, like so, what is failure? What do we actually mean by failure? And so he just questions that idea of failure in general right. he's, he's more or less trying to get rid of that um that dichotomy of failure versus success right um yeah exactly and and the the idea that i think is embedded in this essay without necessarily being spelled out at any given point uh is that success in america i mean this is somewhat spelled out at, at some points but success in america is um, literally sort of a, a point value in direct correlation to like your own monetary value that whoever, sure. whoever dies with the, the highest number of, of points with a dollar sign behind them at the end of their life they they win. Um, sure. and, and the rest of us fail. And I think that, uh, the rejection of that idea has been crucial in my life. Um, Mm-hmm. And that I think, you know, especially at the time that I was reading this the first time when I was in grad school and in a lot of ways very much on the cusp of making a lot of decisions about how to spend my time and my energy um, mm -hmm. and what to pursue. And uh, the idea, I, I think, I think it's, I think like when I got to the end and just read the sentence, the heart can be filled up anywhere on earth. I remember, I do remember specifically wishing like having the urge to just like chop this entire essay out of the book and like fold it up and just like sew it into my skin somehow um <laughs> sure because at a certain point it occurred to me that you know a lot of especially when you're not born with with wealth but even to some extent when you are a lot of life is just struggling to afford things um and you know a lot mm -hmm. of therefore a lot of people sort of ideal is a life where you're you're uh you know you don't have to worry about that you just you just can buy things and and you know sure. pay rent and whatever without worrying about it um and at a certain point fairly early on i remember having the thought that like if i can't excuse me learn to be happy or at least content while not having money I don't think the addition of any particular, like, amount of money would ever make me happier. Sure. Like, it would it yeah. would maybe provide some temporary relief, but I don't think that it's a lack of money that creates the structures in my brain that will allow me to be content. Right, and he, he illustrates that through especially Paul Dean. Paul, Pauline, but the the rest of the Bardolls yeah. too. That you know, they had a great deal of happiness in their life and and fulfillment and yeah, um, and they did have you know kind of. Bill Holm is in a way sort of a spiritual child of Pauline, especially yes. 
you know, despite, you know, he, he, he really clearly punctuates this, and I'm not going to find exactly in this 40-page essay where the line is, um, that uh, they came, this family came to the United States, and before a hundred years were up, they were all dead. Right. Which, that, it, you can't get more failure than that, according to this idea of the, the American idea of success, anyway. Right. Um, but to Bill Holm, they were a success, and he, because they found value in, in him, and now even through this essay, through everyone who reads it, right. <laughs> you know, they've achieved a sort of immortality that right. way. Um, but, uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, as, as you were talking here, too, I started to wonder whether Bill Holm would be pleased or not with the idea of, uh, well, the, the, the current... Um, millennial idea of of spending money on experience rather than on things yeah um, if that would if that would be kind of in in line of what he's he's getting at with a lot of these things i think i don't know if it's necessarily necessarily a direct correlation i but, think um, i don't i think it would be sideways for him sure i think he would say you can spend money on things and you can spend money on experience both badly and I think he would say oh, you sure. can spend money on things and you can spend money on experience, both in pursuit of the sacred or in pursuit of that that sort of personal um, ideal or transcendence or whatever. Uh, sure. I, I, I don't think he would. I think I think he might sort of approve of. He might not give a, a universal yeah. sort of dictate on I that idea. I think he might approve. I, I do think he might approve of like the the sentiment driving that idea that that um, sure experiences are something that you can't lose and that you know can't sort of go away in a fire or whatever that you know mm -hmm. they're they're ways that the heart can be filled up at any time and in in any place maybe i don't know i'm i am just speculating here but no that's all right that's all right that's uh -huh. um one thing yeah. as we were toddling towards the end of our time um but <laughs> i did i do i think it's fascinating um and this is into some of his his rhetorical parts of this essay uh which again like i mentioned when we were talking about grand tour i didn't mind them in this one um so much because they're integrated more sort of holistically into what he's doing in this essay that clearly he has sort of a a set of points he wants to drive mm -hmm. home um what those those like more rhetorical flourishes and i'm thinking especially of the section a fortissimo blast from walt whitman swelled by the author's indignation in which he does mm -hmm. quote nearly two pages worth of a whitman essay um mm -hmm. and uh you know that he says is from whatever 18 1870 i want to say um and then he says it could have been written in 1985, which presumably is when he's writing this essay. Um, he, uh, right. which is is fascinating because I think this essay could have been written in 2019. Um, uh -huh. <laughs> which, uh, which again we talked about a little bit before with you know he's he's stating all of these particulars, but in the same way that he's pulled out of of Whitman something that was true for Whitman in 1870 and is true for him in 1985. I think he's very good at at writing sort of those those trend lines or those those universals, um, talking about things that maybe people could always stand to hear, 
Um, mm-hmm. He, uh, uh, so I was going to say, though, what, what the more rhetorical parts of this essay, what they remind me of in with some of these more f- fictive seeming techniques that he's using, they remind me of a play by Bertolt Brecht, um, oh. where in, in a Brecht play, you know, you'll have this like fictional scenario, but then at some points, like some of the characters will stop and turn and like give a lecture to the audience about economics uh-huh. or something like to the point of sometimes like pulling chalkboards you know uh uh downstage to like illustrate their point or whatever um and i mean if you if you take Yo. an essay that quotes from other essays but has a section title called a fortissimo blast from walt whitman's well by the author's indignation and you don't think that is an artistic essay then i don't understand mm-hmm. what you think art is so anyway uh, the point I, I actually wanted to get to three digressions ago um, is that, again, like you said, I'm not going to find the, the line in here, but he talks about this idea that America uh, as, a, as a Western nation has a real bad uh, track record and ability of grappling with its, its sins, right? Um, mm-hmm. you know, our treatment of the, the, the United States' treatment of black people and of Native Americans for two, like, obvious examples um, are things that we, like, have paid lip service to knowing we did badly on, but to this day, we are bad. A, like, it's a controversial statement to say that we attempted genocide against several Native American tribes, even though that statement is yep. absolutely verifiable by historical fact. It's a historical fact, um, exactly, yeah. And that, that the um, idea that struck me, this was probably the main idea that struck me in rereading this essay this time, is the idea that maybe being a nation of failures, a nation of people who came from Europe not because we were doing well in Europe, um, that maybe our our drive towards success sort of somehow keeps us, blinkers us from... Uh, being able to deal with those failures within our own history. Like I thought that just as an sure. idea, I thought that was absolutely fascinating. No, I, and I love that idea that he gets to, which is um, maybe not the central, but it's certainly a central idea in the music of failure. And it might be the central idea, but the idea that um, acknowledging failure is a sign of maturity and a sign of, of yes. success and whereas he doesn't uh, get to the, the theological side of that necessarily, that the parallel of that in Christianity is almost the, theolo- the theology of the right. cross, uh, which is, uh, he, he has a, a line in here about uh, him singing, be a, yeah, here on page 83, him, him singing seemed one kind of preparation for the last great mysterious right. failure, the funeral. Uh, which yes you know a a a good lutheran would absolutely agree with that that's perfect theology of the cross yes hymn singing is all about preparing for the funeral (laughs) right and and holm Um, has you know (laughs) lutheran in his background too so you know this yeah this may not be nearly as much of a stretch as when we find lutheranism in like neil gaiman or uh uh some other authors um but yeah and you know to a lot of those old hymns i forget if abide with me does but some of the other you know a lot of those old hymns like the last verse will be um yeah literally a funeral verse or literally a, a deathbed verse um wait isn't isn't the isn't it abide with me that the last verse is a 
something like hold hold now this cross before my failing eyes before yeah my closing eyes yeah, yeah. um mm-hmm. and that's that's a tradition in a lot of these old hymns that that holm is referencing here is you have the last verse sort of you know in a misa sense is is mimicking the end of life um yep so yeah 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 uh, yeah and that is verse okay. eight of abide with me nice. <laughs> <Just look at laughs> it. um and and uh yeah and that's that's you know we we touched on some of his his more acerbic comments about about the church or about christianity um and i think that a, a not very careful reader could come away from this thinking that he's he's attacking sort of christianity as a whole and i think holm is is much more careful than that um because yes every time he's talking about the church or the the church as a power structure he's talking about um an outside sort of influence imposing its view of what your mm-hmm. personal life is on your personal life often as a mechanism of control um yeah and that's very different i think you could do like if i were back in grad school god forbid um i i would be tempted (laughs) to do like a whole essay about the the dichotomy of christianity in home because he does have these very acerbic comments but he also talks positively about you know christianity um as a a renunciation of wealth in with his in keeping with his idea of failure Mm -hmm. um and uh, yeah, even and, even in in the very la- the very last section of this this uh, essay, the music of failure is literally called the still small voice of Miniota. Um, and right, like he definitely takes those those um, themes and things from both, scripture and not Christianity. Only, not and only such. themes, but like the language itself. And, yeah, the language. Um, and yeah, I think often mm-hmm. while he's personalizing it and he's maybe using it not in the sense that the biblical writers were it's still very much an influence that he's he's done the opposite of reject he's synthesized it certainly yeah and i I don't know what his ultimate um religious inclinations were he seems to to reject a a certain aspect of like established religion and things like that but i think what he's actually objecting to and um this is i'll leave it at that what he's actually objecting to is um the the stoicism that has risen up more or less in Midwestern American yes. Christianity. Um, the, the idea, uh, which Stoicism is, by definition, a rejection of failure, a rejection yes. of suffering, a rejection of uh, anything that um, that looks like things aren't going well. Right. <laughs> like uh, Stoicism's favorite um, uh, aphorisms for, for Christianity is God never gives you more right. than you can handle. Therefore, stop suffering <laughs> because it's not actually there. You can handle it. Which is a which that's what he's objecting to. of certain popular yes, Bible verses. Yes, absolutely. And like you can go back to the early church fathers and they objected to this exact same yes. Stoicism. Back when it was actually, uh, and stoicism. in fact, the theology of the cross was the thing that cured the the idea of yeah. stoicism. And and Bill Holm is getting to that idea of the theology of the cross in a more and secular I, I wanted aspect. To, when you mentioned that before, I wanted for for any of our listeners who uh, don't necessarily know that terminology. Um, oh sure, this is uh, a a really helpful concept within Christianity that I think might help uh, talk about what Holm is actually talking about in the music of failure. The idea, you have the theology yeah. of glory versus the theology of cross. And the theology of glory mm-hmm. is rampant in American Christianity, um, both now and mm-hmm. h- 
historically, and it's this idea that God gives you all this power to be like a great person or whatever. Think uh, Joel yeah. Osteen. Um, and and so the theology of the cross is essentially the opposite of that. It's it's in a sense it, this dichotomy is what Holm is talking about when he talks about how American Christianity values uh, success, including monetary success, even though Christianity is a is a religion that has historically embraced happy poverty um so it, it's it's that dichotomy that that Holm is talking about here and um i i'm not trying to like necessarily claim Holm as a as a christian writer but uh i can't help but think that somewhere in his background that dichotomy between glory versus the cross or glory versus suffering probably informed mm -hmm. his his idea of failure and failure as yes. either redemptive or as not necessarily failure right right and that's maybe where he gets his most universal appeal um or application that uh that because that's not just a midwestern idea that's not just a minnesotan idea um this idea of failure as it is commonly defined isn't necessarily yeah. failure it's um that's a universal human, human experience thing. certainly um yeah but again it it it's very much sort of if there is a literary legacy of the midwest i as as a, a regional literature um you know whether you're talking about about bill holm or saul bellow or garrison keeler um or mm -hmm. even mark twain to some extent you could you could claim him for the midwest um I will too. I will. Uh, <laughs> uh, sometimes I make fun of Missouri and call it the South, but since it suits my interests here, I'll, I'll call it the Midwest. Um, sure, sure. Just because it's connected to the Mississippi, exactly. uh, which is a Minnesotan river. <laughs> oh man, we 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 can't get off tra trail into this debate at this point in the episode. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so you know, the, if if there is sort of a Midwestern legacy on literature, it might be. A, a focus or a, a, a foregrounding of that question is is what you think of as failure actually failure um uh -huh. and this you know this comes partly out of the midwest's inferiority complex because everyone wants to be in la or new york city or or right on the coast. right you know we're stuck looking up at the planes that fly yeah, over us exactly <laughs> um and, but in reaction to that we've we've maybe tended to pose the question like but then again, why does 80% of the country live here and not move out to the yep. coast? Like, maybe yep. maybe even if you have something we don't, maybe we know something you don't. Um, yeah. And I think that's, like, exactly. that kind of thought is what uh, uh, makes Bill Holm both a Midwestern and a, a universal writer. Absolutely. Um, anything more you want to say on the music of failure, Ethan? No, I feel like I've talked too much already, but... I mean, I, I feel like we've talked too much and also not enough. <laughs> yeah. Because um, we could go on even more. This, the, is... The, this is a set of, of essays that we could almost talk just like section by section or paragraph by paragraph about these Absolutely. things. Absolutely. I was, um, was going to say this is one more of those books that as I'm looking at it, less than 150 pages... And I feel like we could do one of our four episode uh, uh, series Absolutely. on it if we if we decided to. Right. Yep. Definitely. Um, 
So, yeah, I, I guess if there's nothing more to say, and I think you kind of rounded it out a little bit, let's go on to uh, our ratings. Ratings. All right. I forget what we rate on specials. Do we actually rate? Yeah, we, we rate our drinks uh, okay, and, and yeah, things. We, we do. do all the ratings, but uh, it's, it tends now. to be a little more abbreviated. So um, how would you rate your drink? What'd you call it again? It was the Great uh, Northern. The Great Northern, the book, that's right. The book called it. Um, I'd rate it about a, a three and a half to four as cocktails go. It's it's nothing mind-blowing, but it's a it's a nice, pleasant, like kind of light summer sipper. Gotcha. Very good. Um, Satin Solitude, for me, uh, is, is always going to be a 4.5 among beers. Um, I, I think it tends to be uh, a little more delicious during the, the cooler seasons, fall and winter. I was going to ask winter. you about that. Because it's, what, but, what uh, is it? It's it, a, is it a porter? Yes. Well, it's a stout, an imperial oh, okay. stout. Oh, wow. Okay, um, yeah. So, I mean, b- with its thickness and heaviness and darkness, it's definitely going to be better for the cooler seasons. But uh, if you're sitting inside in air conditioning, <laughs> it's also very good. Um, so, yeah, 4.5, always. Satin Solitude is just so good. Yeah. Um, and I'll just give a, a blanket universal sort of uh advocation for central waters brewing anything from them is gonna be good even even before you did that i was fixing to say that like central waters can cut us that second endorsement check anytime yeah they can do that yep just you know come on after the first one they cut us at the beginning of the episode right (laughs) and now we've delivered so come on (laughs) (laughs) fork it over um all right what about the book ethan uh i mean buy it even when I forgot whether we were rating things, I was planning to interject and just say buy it. Okay. And All right. also buy it and buy it. And see, like, I'm going back and forth on buy and borrow it. I'm really sure. leaning towards buy it, but here's the reason I would say borrow it. Uh-huh. I'd say borrow it because if you are not a person who actually enjoys reading creative nonfiction, and I think Bill Holm stands as a, a paragon among creative nonfiction. If you don't like reading creative nonfiction, so if you don't like reading Bill Holm, then you know you don't like reading creative nonfiction. <laughs> uh, then you can just turn it back into your library. But if you read it and you love it, then you can keep it. Buy it. Yeah. Buy another one. Buy a copy for yourself. Um, because I think it does stand um, rereading. I, I already read The Grand Tour twice, and I'm nice. planning to read the rest of them um, uh, all through at least once or twice. Um, but... Uh, you know, if you borrow it and like it, then you can buy it and read it again and not lose anything. You'll 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 enjoy it. So I think that's what I say. Sure, I think I think anyone who likes reading, period, should read Bill Holm. Again, partly because sure. if you don't like him, then you just don't like creative nonfiction, and you've sort of gotten that whole genre out of the way. Um, right. But also, yeah. Holm is like Holm is one of those authors that I actually think people should be forced quote unquote like in in the sense that schools mm-hmm. force you to read things um i think i think everyone would benefit from reading bill Holm, even if they don't like him absolutely even just stylistically yeah uh, like i think i think that he could be a, a an example for for um college writing courses sure yeah absolutely uh, um like, you know and read him and then you know take some of the structural things he does and emulate them in your own writing yeah and this is this is to say, you know, I, I don't always agree with his more rhetorical points. A lot of them I do agree with, sure. but there are certainly ones that I would disagree with, as I think he would want. Yep. Um, right. I don't think he wants anyone to just blankly agree with him. I yeah. think he enjoys discussion. Yeah. And, um, 
differences of opinion. Yeah. I also so. suspect that he would he would actually not mind your your borrow it recommendation because I think he would sure. he would say yeah borrow it you know support your local library. I I, I just think sure. that would be like a very yeah. this is again he strikes me as the sort of person who would totally be on board with yeah that. pure speculation but i i get i i, I suspect right and we'll never know he's dead but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway yeah uh what about the pairing ethan with your drink and your in the book i i do think i didn't i don't wow crap i don't actually know if i did this on purpose with pairing such a scandinavian writer with a, a cocktail based <laughs> in like the spirit of Scandinavia. Um, right. But I have to say just for, just for the uh, uh, fact that I think Holm would, I suspect again, Holm would approve wholeheartedly of it, that that I have mm-hmm. to, I have, what is our rating system for the pairing? I forget. Uh, well, what we've got in our script is perfect match, pretty good okay. match, slight mismatch, total mismatch. I'm going to just say perfect match then. Just because perfect match, Akavid, Scandinavian right. writer, like hard to, hard to go too wrong. Yeah, hard to argue with that. Um, for mine, I'm gonna say it's a pretty good match. Uh, Sat in solitude, like I said, it's how the book makes me feel. But uh-huh. um, I, I honestly do think a Scotch would be a much better pairing for this book. Yeah, I could see that. And and I think I, I I was trying to look through just again briefly, but I think I remember actually in the foreword. Uh, that the writer said something about how Bill Holm liked to drink scotch. Oh, this is um, the second time you've made me regret that I didn't read the foreword. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good foreword. I didn't like the afterword as okay. much, um, but uh, the foreword was good. Um, but yeah, I, I just think a scotch would have worked better. Sure. But as far as beers go, I think Satin Solitude is a pretty good match. Any, anything that's like very dense and packs a lot of meaning into a small space. Right, right. Yeah, like a 140-page book. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, anything else to say, Ethan? Uh, not, nothing from me. All right. Uh, so next time, gentle listener, we're going to be discussing uh, our first Mongo book of Season 4. This is officially the last episode of Season 3. Uh, so Season 4 begins with A Human Bondage by Somerset Maugham. And uh, we'll be doing four episodes on that. We'll probably break it up in the middle there with a special of some sort or other. Um, but uh, read along with us uh, as far as that goes. You've already had time uh, to, to start it, so keep going with that. Um, then uh, give us your feedback on uh, both uh, Bill Holm and any of the books that we've read or just the podcast in general. Go to tapestryradio.org. Go to the contact section. On Twitter, you can find us at Room with Scotch. And on Facebook, you can find us in the Tapster Radio Tap House. You can request to join that group, and we'll let you in as long as you're not a robot uh, or a capitalist bureaucrat. Uh, well, we might, but even then, we, we might. might. We might. No, not because though. we're not capitalist bureaucrats, or are we? <laughs> um, not yet. Not yet. Not until uh, Logan <laughs> Lulin throws us that sponsorship. That's right. We're trying our best. <laughs> um, We'll also do your homework, though. We won't promise to do it well, but we are officially condoning plagiarism. This podcast officially, officially condones plagiarism uh, just because it's funny. Go to our website, tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast. Fill out the form there. Uh, we'll make it fun, and please feel free to turn it into your teachers when we've done it. Um, we'll we'll laugh at you from behind the, 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 the prison cell of... of plagiarism um i would like and if to, you like this podcast i would like to read yeah. into the record that michael said all the plagiarism recommendations so only yep. he should go to prison 
Not me, though, because I'm not the one plagiarizing. Oh, I'm just telling you to do it. That's true. Um, Only he is an accessory and not me. <laughs> uh, but if you like this podcast, check out our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, like Intermission, the Backstage Drama Podcast, and Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United Actual Play RPG Podcast. Rate and review us and all the podcasts you love on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Uh, and uh, that'll help others learn about us and enjoy the the show as well. Uh, Ethan, where can the the gentle listener find you? I am on Twitter at Bjartlett, B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. You can also read my webcomic, Pinporter Girl Detective, at pinporterdetective.org, I think. Uh, (laughs) You always second-guess the dot. Was it .org.com? I think it's .org. I'm pretty sure it's .org. Otherwise, just type in pinporter girl detective on google and you should get there you should um, be able to find it yeah so yeah that's those are my big things i guess yeah uh on twitter you can find me at m-g-l-i-l-i-e-n-t-h-a-l uh i haven't been tweeting a whole lot lately but i'm still there um i don't tweet ever yeah. but if i if you tweet at me i will see it sure sure it counts <laughs> something yep. Um, so yeah, uh, that's, that's us, gentle listener. And so until next time, just remember it's our party and we'll cry if we want to. And as Bill Holm has taught us, we do want to. Yeah. So bye-bye.
obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From our fancy to yours.